Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation? Uh, we're going to be in chapter 17. We're going to tiptoe a few verses into chapter 18 uh, this morning. <clears throat> Last Sunday, Alan did an amazing job unpacking two chapters, um, Revelation 15 and 16. And he contrasted the eternal victory that God gives to his people and the worship God deserves. Oh, the worship he deserves um, because of what he's done for us. Um, and he also talked about the, the, the equally powerful truth that God will bring judgment, a righteous judgment upon all those who reject his loving offer of salvation. Revelation 16 illustrated that judgment by using the imagery, imagery of God pouring out his wrath through the vehicle of bowls being emptied, uh, the bowls, the seven bowls of Revelation. As we approach chapter 17, I just want you to kind of notice something in the landscape of Revelation. It seems that the pace with which we are supposed to read Revelation suddenly really slows down. Let me explain why. Um, it seems that God wants to highlight what I believe are some pastoral lessons for his people. Remember, remember, this book is meant to pastor your heart more than to prophesy to your heart. It's meant to transform you and grow you in the likeness of Jesus and his character. It's intended to grow you in the passion of his mission. That, so that, that's the pastoral arm, uh, the pastoral heartbeat of Revelation. And I believe there's going to be some very significant and poignant pastoral lessons that God, that's why God's kind of slowing us down. Take the foot off the gas a little bit here. There's some things that I really want you to take to heart. And I think that's what's happening here. And he relates it to really the outpouring of the seventh bowl. And it's almost like he's peeling back the, the curtain a little bit to say, I want to show you what, what is happening that you might miss if we just, if we just celebrated all the, we just wanted to hurry up and get to uh, Revelation 21 and 22 and, and the second coming of Jesus. Um, so this morning we're going to be introduced to a woman described as a prostitute whose name is Babylon the Great and why that matters. So, Let's read, beginning in chapter 17. In verse, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read to chapter 18, verse 2. And these, these chapters are so interconnected that we'll pick up next week um, into going into chapter 18. Here's the inerrant, sufficient authoritative, transforming word of God. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names 
And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. It belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And then the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their authority, their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated and peoples are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they, are, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you, would you help us understand your word according to the divine intention by which you gave it to that first early church? Lord, we know that it has to mean today what it meant then. It cannot mean today what it did not mean then. 
So please help us to understand what it meant then. And then would you help us in a grace-empowered, spirit-empowered way to apply the timeless truth of the passage to our day-to-day lives? And in all of it, we're asking that you would change our hearts to be more like yours. Oh, we love you, Lord. We need you. Please speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the amount of time that God gives to teaching us about Babylon, warning us about Babylon, equipping us to overcome Babylon, and encouraging us by the ultimate defeat of Babylon is meant for us to sit up and pay attention. <laughs> it's, that's, for, for him to focus this much on this topic, it's meant to be communicating something to our hearts. And it's supposed to stir in us a passion to grow in our love for the Lord and to not allow any other love to even rival our love for God. So when the text says Babylon the great has fallen, I just, I didn't get a sense that there was this rising up in, in and listen, and I, I've been looking at this for days, okay? So, so and it, this is true of me. I didn't get the sense in this room that we're just rising up with passion and just go, yes! <laughs> Isn't that great? High five! Babylon the great has fallen! Did any of you have that feeling? I think the text is trying to show us that God wants to give us that passion. He wants to give us that heart. And the way that comes is to understand the background of why God would take so much time to speak so directly to our hearts and to what we need from God in this fallen world uh, with devils filled. So, so let me kind of put it in some different language. Okay, that you all have some background for. So let's say the Cowboys and Chiefs are in the Super Bowl this year. Okay, how many Cowboys fans do we have here? Wow. Hallelujah, my prayers are getting answered. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I just, I don't, anyway, that's a whole nother story. I won't tell you about my Cowboys story. Um, but I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of Cowboys, but I'm, I'm going to favor the Cowboys with this illustration. So, so the game happens, it goes into overtime. Dak Prescott throws a 125-yard pass. Um, it, it's it, a diving catch. The two toes are in the, you know, just it's, a, it's, it's putting those toes down. Amazing catch. The crowd goes wild. And now, if I were to say, the Chiefs have fallen, I don't think anybody would be silent in the room, Right? There'd be something that resonates with that. There'd be, there, you, you would have a reason to say, yes, it's good the chiefs have fallen. <laughs> Those poor chiefs, right? I mean, we're, making, we're kind of being pounded on them. Well, let's go. How about politics? How about if the, there's a Republican president and the Democrats are thinking he's ruining the country and then the Democratic president wins? And, and if, you're, if you're a, a Democrat, uh, do you think the room would be silent if, 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 if upon announcing the winner is the Democratic candidate? Do you think the room would be silent if the, if the Democrats would say, the Republicans have fallen? It wouldn't be silent, would it? Because you'd have a background as to why that would create such a passion in you. Oh, guys, God wants to give us a passion for him. 
and for his glory and for why this declaration of victory is so important. You could do the other way too. So I'm not just favoring Democrats or Republicans. You could do the same thing. The same thing would happen regardless of who the next president would be. How about this? There's a cure for cancer. And somebody would say, especially somebody who had a family member with that particular kind of cancer, and if you heard cancer has fallen, you wouldn't be silent. You wouldn't be silent. ISIS has fallen. We wouldn't be silent. How about this? Just this past, this, just in our, our recent news cycle, Roe v. Wade is overturned. Abortion has fallen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for becoming a sermon illustration. That was fantastic. Could you guys just kind of come with me whenever I... <laughs> that was fantastic. You, you see what I'm saying? There's a background to it. We know that there was something diabolical and it was defeating, it was killing innocent lives. And it's been overturned, it's, it's, it's been overcome. You guys, that I think gives a little bit of a taste of what God wants you to experience the next time when we get to, the, to, to 18, at the end of today, a little bit, but even more next week. Oh, how I pray that it's gonna be much more meaningful to you to hear the good news from God's lips himself to say, Babylon is fallen. I hope that's, that will be all of our experience. And that, why, that's why God has taken two and a half chapters to teach us about the triumph of the Lamb and the Lamb's people over Babylon. I think if Hollywood were making a movie of, of Revelation, I don't think they would make much of 17 and 18. I think they'd may, maybe make much of the Battle of Armageddon. You know, that we, we could use a lot more special effects and stuff for that. But, but that's not where God focuses. God slows down, focuses our attention on the things that he's doing amidst the seventh bowl judgment of God upon Babylon. And God gives us eyes to see why it's such good news that Babylon would be destroyed by revealing to us what Babylon really is. And secondly, how we're to recognize and respond to Babylon now. So the main point this morning is this, I hope this just comes out so clearly, and, and we, we were already singing it in our songs, in our gospel songs today. The main point is very simple, love the Lord, not the world. Love the Lord, not the world. Love the Lord, and not the world. Well, let's give you some background. Let's, let's start building uh, a biblical foundation for why this is such a celebration for Babylon to be defeated and overcome and eliminated. So let's look at a history of Babylon. This would, we, we, we would go back to Genesis for this, and we would start in Genesis 11. God has just judged the sin of mankind with a worldwide flood. You think that would get people's attention, don't you? Hmm. And so here comes, you know, raising up of a, another population of people after the flood, but you'd think within that first generation, you'd think there'd be some memory of the devastation that God's judgment would bring. For the unrepentant. Wow. Well, we don't, we, that's, that's, I have so many word crashes. And just, total depravity isn't, isn't cured by bad circumstances. Total depravity just isn't cured by negative things happening. The only way total depravity is cured is by the preaching of the gospel. 
and the explosive power of the good news of Christ dying for sinners and rising again so that we could be declared righteous and adopted as sons and daughters. That's the only cure for depravity. Well, depravity was raging once again, so the flood didn't end depravity. It brought judgment. It was a foreshadowing of a worse judgment to come. So look at what people did. God's judged the sin of mankind, worldwide flood, and he's now given a similar command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord through people who love him and serve him and are, 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 are his image bearers. Guys, that really, that, that great commission mentality started at the very beginning. God, God wants his image bearers all over the earth to bring him glory and to show what, the, what he's like to a watching world. That's always been the mission for the follower of God. But in 11.4, you know the story. The people living in Babylon, they've got a different idea. They say, come, let us build a city with a tower that extends to the heavens. We, don't, we, can, we can get up to God on our own good works and our own methods. We don't need God to have heaven, which sadly is kind of the story at many funerals, isn't it? I mean, have you ever been to a funeral and you know that unless something happened at the last second of this person's life, you know that they were a rejecter of Jesus. And yet somehow, so many funerals seem to make it sound like just somehow death magically qualifies you for heaven. Well, these people come and say, we're going to get to heaven. There is a heaven. We'll get there. Not because we need help from God. We'll, we'll get there ourselves. But here's the kicker. And let's make a name for ourselves. You remember that? Now you get starting to taste the heartbeat, the distasteful heartbeat of Babylon. Let's make a, come on, Arenio, come on. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Now, that's all around us, isn't it? Keep that in mind. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They do the opposite of what God commanded. And instead of focusing on building a city, um, and instead focused on building a city where man is God, so please listen, and man's gospel is prosperity, pleasure, and power. So I want you to get that image. I think this is so important for, for, for what 17 and 18 are supposed to be teaching us and where God wants to bring conviction as well as compassion and courage for us to stand firm against temptations. Um, this is a city where man is God and man's gospel is, is the good news of prosperity. We don't need God, we need prosperity. We don't need God, we need pleasure. We don't need God, we need power. So that's the city of man. The city of man is where man is God and man's gospel is prosperity, pleasure, and power. God and his ways are rejected and they're rebelled against and they're irrelevant. It's a city where man and his glory and his pleasures are at the center of that city. In Genesis 11:6, 6, uh, the Lord says, Behold, they are one people and one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. God's given us a foreshadowing, isn't it? 
that this, this mentality, this city of man, wasn't just going to stop in this town named Babel. Even though God came and totally defeated it, right? God had his way, regardless of the disobedience of people. God still had his way, and he dispersed people. You know the rest of the story. But do you see what he's saying? He's, he's, he's telling us that, that this is only the beginning of what they'll do. So there'll be a rising up again of this city of man, first known as Babel. And, and so let's keep going. From the very beginning, Babylon stood for all that was in opposition to God and the Lamb because man placed himself at the center of the story. Can I tell you just something? You can tell when you're the center of your story because you really interpret the world badly. It, it, we, we totally mess up. Let me give you an illustration. Have you ever been walking down a hallway and you're the only, there's just you and this one other person so it's obvious if you say something that this person's going to hear that. And you're walking and, and you're seeing, you're kind of, you're playing that game. Are they going to give me their eyes? Do I look down? Do I look, you know, and you're kind of doing that, that kind of game and wondering, do I say something? I mean, so finally, you finally say, well, of course, I'm a Christian. I, I should at least say hello. So you say hello to that person. And that person just stares at you and just walks past. Okay. Here's interpreting the story. Because guys, the facts of our lives aren't our worst problem. It's how we interpret the facts. So the facts were, you just got dissed. Apparently, it seemed like, right? You just, you just got disrespected. Really? Was it? Well, depends on who the center of your story is. If I'm the center of my story, I'm going to really misinterpret that. You know how I'm going I'm to interpret that? I'm going, you idiot. What a jerk. I knew there was nothing good about, I mean, just, th you know, that's, just trying, this is why I need Jesus so much, you guys, this is why I need Jesus so much. Way different if God's the center of my story, way different if Christ's the center of my story. Hi. Wow. Man, I, I, I'm going to pray for them. I wonder if something's on their heart. Uh, who knows the, the sorrows, the burdens they may be carrying? Dear God, please, I lift this person up to you. Oh God, may they know the hope that comes from knowing Jesus. See, see the difference the center of the story makes? It totally affects the way you interpret things. Totally affects. It'll, it'll affect the way you're interpreting marriage. It'll, it'll affect the way you're interpreting your employment, etc., well, that's what's happening here in this story of Babylon. Man is in, he is demanding to be the center of the story. And Genesis 11.8 tells us God defeats that original city of man. We already, we already mentioned that. Well, you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this continual rise and fall of this city that man wants to build with himself and his pleasures and prosperity and power at the center of the city. And in opposition to the city that God is building that has the Lamb at the center. One of the next times Babylon is seen in Scripture, it's become much more than a city, hasn't it? It's become a ruling empire. You see why God was saying, this is only the beginning. This is only the beginning of the city of man trying to raise itself up to contend against God and lure people away from God. And now it's a ruling empire. She destroyed God's city of Jerusalem and its temple. Uh, the, uh, Babylon takes many of the people into exile or kills them. 
And just to give you a sense of how worldly and man-centered this empire of Babylon was, just listen to the words of its king Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.30 when Nebuchadnezzar says this. And the king answered and said, is, is not this great Babylon, here we go, which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Wow. Make a name for yourself, right? You see, that, you see how this theme is ongoing. He built a statue of himself. You know that. The people were required to bow down to or else be thrown in the fiery furnace. Well, thanks be to God that even the dominating empire Babylon dies. But the spirit of Babylon just doesn't seem to die. And that's, you guys, I think this is such an important point for us to get. I I don't think until Jesus comes and brings in the new heavens and new earth, I don't think that somehow we're going to try to, that somehow we're going to change culture enough that we're actually, we're, we're, we're actually eliminating evil and evil intentions and the city of man off the face of the earth. I, I don't know that that's going to happen. That'd be great if it would happen. I don't know that that's going to happen. Even this dominating empire, Babylon, dies. But there's still this rising up again and again and again. In your notes is how D.A. Carson puts it. This Babylon, so what I'm, what I'm taking you to here is when Scripture is speaking of Babylon as we get into Revelation, it's not speaking to a place. It's speaking to a fallen condition of our world and how Satan, ten, how Satan wants to manipulate that fallen condition to draw people away from the Lord himself. Okay? So this is how, how D.A. Carson puts it. Historical Babylon was by this point a ruin of a place, a relatively small and certainly enfeebled, <laughs> you got to love D.A. Carson, enfeebled center without significant influence. But Babylon had stood in the Old Testament times for all that was pagan and powerful and self-promoting and vile. Babylon was the city that had sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile however much the people of God had earned the judgment. (laughs) Now the ancient city's name is transferred to Rome, the new geopolitical center. And that's where we find ourselves in our text moving um, this morning. After Babylon falls, I mean, you just still see rising up. We see Babylon in in the rising up of Athens and, and, and the power of Greece. And then Greece falls. And then Rome is raised up as another Babylon. Like the nation of Babylon, Rome also destroyed Jerusalem. It defiled and destroyed God's temple. It sent many of God's people into exile. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5.13 makes a direct connection between the spirit of Babylon and Rome. Revelation Revelation 17.9 also makes that connection when it says, um, between Babylon and Rome, when it says that that the seven heads are the seven mountains on which Babylon is seated on which this prostitute, this this great prostitute, the the harlot Babylon is seated. And as you know, Rome is known as the city of seven hills. So what I think we make a mistake in doing is if we we just stop and say, that has to be Rome, and and then we just, we make it a geographical point rather than a spiritual point. We make it that, that, so the end times really aren't going to really come into view until there's a revived Roman Empire. You guys, there's already, Babylon is right among us now. 
There's already a revived Roman Empire. We walk out into it every day. It's the spirit of worldliness. It's man wanting to make a name for himself. It's, it's, the, it's a man-centered story in which the gospel is one of pleasure and prosperity and power. It's an ongoing battle. And it's an ongoing temptation for every church generation, with every generation of the church and every believer. I think that's why he slows down. I think that's why he takes two and a half chapters to say, this is really important for your hearts because you're living in this right now. You, you're, you're breathing in the atmosphere of the spirit of Babylon every day, every day. We'll, we'll describe more of that in just a minute. Uh, that's, that's why we don't want to relegate the thought of end times. It's just the last couple of years before Jesus returns. They may be horrible. I don't know. But listen, we have all we can handle right now. And the Lord is greater than it all right now. Rome Caesars are claimed to be God, and the people were called to worship them. Rome was very much known as a city where man is God, and its gospel was one of prosperity and pleasure and power. It would take about 400 years, but this city of man, this Babylon known as Rome, it too would fall. And this rise and fall of the spirit of Babylon will continue and as it's described in Revelation 17, because that's, you know, as the writing of this, of, of this book of the Bible, it's still in the shadows of Babylon. It's still in the shadows of Rome, right? So Rome is in the process of, of falling, but it hasn't fallen yet. So yes, Rome would be a reference point for us in this book as an illustration of the condition of people's hearts and the temptations we all face through, through a demonic strategy to fan the flames of things that are already, are already temptations. We don't even need the devil to have the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. What the devil loves to come in and do is, how can I fan the flame of things you're already tempted by? Does that make sense? You're going to see that a little bit more here. Revelation tells us that its final appearance in the world prior to Christ's return will be its greatest. It's just this crescendo, I guess, before the Lord returns. Revelation 18.3 says, here's how pervasive it'll be. All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And even worse, the Antichrist, the beast, who we've already been learning about, is going to be her greatest ally, at least for a while, this alliance between the city of man, Babylon, the Antichrist, they're all going to rage against God and his people. Revelation 17, 6, you already saw, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. And certainly that's referring mainly to martyrdom. But I also think we can make an application here that, that I, think, I think the fallen world, Satan himself, the false prophet, this harlot Babylon, loves to see Christian demise, whether that's your martyrdom or that's your compromise. I think that's just as, I, th I think Satan drools at you compromising your walk with Jesus as much as he would celebrate your martyrdom. I'll be honest with you guys. I think this issue of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is a far greater danger than persecution from, from pagan government 
Put very simply, Babylon is worldliness. It's loving the things of the world more than we love the creator of the world. And this is where in your notes, 1 John 2 spells this out. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Can we just do a little quick review of that? And like I said, guys, this is, this is going to be a combination of a sermon today and sermon next week because of the symmetry of chapter 17 and 18. I think today the most important thing is laying a foundation for why we should, we should be so happy that Babylon has fallen. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. That speaks about desires for things we don't have. Now this is, I hope this starts striking closer to home. I hope this, this isn't just a theological lesson. Now I hope it's a convictional lesson. Because there's not one of us in this room that, that sees something we don't have and we're pretty convinced that we need it to be happy. Unless I'm, am I the only one? <laughs> could, could someone make me feel a little bit better? Oh, thanks, Brad. Hallelujah, Brad. Hallelujah, Brad. Isn't it good, Brad, that Jesus is better? Amen. Amen. So good. I would even just start asking you now. Sometimes you can tell, like, what's, what's the abundance of your heart by what you're thinking about the most when you have discretionary time? So when you're focused on work or a math problem in school or... You know, when you're focused on something, you're focused. But when you have discretionary time, what rises to the surface? Is it what you don't have? And how much you need what you don't have? And do you see why that's such fertile soil for Satan to plant seeds in? Because there's this thing that's trying to convince you that if you don't get this, you're going to have a less than happy life. It's such a deception. And it's the spirit of Babylon. It's the whole mission and goal of Babylon to take advantage of that vulnerability, that weakness, that doubt, and draw us away from the Lord who himself is the treasure. Eric already really said, shared some great things about that. Um, the pride of life is and so we've got, we, either, we either have this desire, well, I would say ruling desire. So let me, let me, let's make sure. So is the desire for another baby wrong? Oh, no, not at all. Is the desire to be married wrong? No way, Jose. No, is the desire to, to honor your, your boss and, to, and to, a, a worker's worthy of his wage, to be recognized for doing work for the glory of God and for the good of your, your coworkers. So there's so many good things. We're not talking about good things. Calvin put it this way, an idol for most Christians is not that you're just, you can't wait to get out of here so you can smoke a doobie. They just, I'm 62 years old. <laughs> That's what they called it when I was at college. I don't even know if they still call it vape. I don't know what you, I don't know. I'm, this, if my kids were listening, they would go, Dad, stop it. 
Dad, you will never be cool. Dad, you just used marijuana. <laughs> I don't think, unless you don't know the Lord, maybe if you don't know the Lord, and maybe there is a desire to go out and satisfy some urge right now, well, I'd love to talk with you after service about how better Jesus is. But Calvin said, it's not that that's tempting the Christian. The idolatry of Christians is that we want good things too much. They're ruling you. They're ruling your heart. That's why you think of them when you have those discretionary times. That's why you, there's some, there can be panic attacks because you're, you're thinking, I'm not going to get what I need to be happy. And what, what's going to be my fate then? So that's, that's the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh would be physical pleasures. Lust of the eyes would be, would be beauty, the desire for beauty. But I think also intellectual things. You know what we read that puffs us up? So it's, it's these things. We, we're trying to get these things in order to have life that can only be found in Jesus. Or the pride of life is now saying, I have something that I'm scared to death to lose. That's the pride of life. More panic attacks, right? Can I just be real with you? I, you know, I'm telling you, I, the Lord has just put in my heart, the, uh, for us, for all of the elders, it's in our hearts to prepare you for a time that, that I won't see, that Hugh won't see. We're the two oldest elders. We want to prepare you for a time to, to experience an ongoing love of a pastoral team, a mission from Jesus himself, in a day that we won't ever see. So we're wanting to do that. Isn't that good? That's a good thing. Don't you think that's what elders should do? I think that's what we should be doing. But can I tell you though, I've been a pastor here for 29 years and it's just so easy for what you do regularly to become your identity. And every now and then the thought crosses my mind. This is going to sound, I'm so sorry. It's going to sound foolish maybe. What am I going to do if I'm not the lead pastor? Isn't that gross? Maybe, maybe I should quit sooner. <laughs> maybe. But you see what I'm saying? It's, I have something. It's a good thing. God's called me to be a pastor. I don't know what else I would do. <laughs> Sell used camels? I don't know what I would do. I, I don't know what I would do. But, but even a calling from the Lord in, in terms of insecurity and misplaced desires and a wrong mindset can become an idol. Pastoring can be an idol. And there are some times when I think of life moving on and my passing the baton, it'll be the most best thing this church will ever experience for me to pass the baton. It'll be the best thing. But every now and then I wake up, that's one of my three o'clock in the morning wake-ups. What will I do? Isn't it crazy? The devil comes in. So here's Babylon. The devil comes in and tries to root you into that. Fan, yeah, keep thinking about that. You, you're, you are going to be miserable if you don't get that. 
And how does he do it? How does he do it? Turn on your TV. <laughs> I mean, he, he, there are so many pathways for the devil to use. We carry a pathway. It, I mean, thank God for a phone, man. I'm, I'm blessed by it. And look, it's telling me that I've been preaching 39 minutes. That's good for you. <laughs> but it's, we, we carry these pathways for the devil to fan the flames of what we, we're, we don't have and we're longing for and we think we need or the things we have and we're white-knuckling them because if we lose them, where will we be? You guys, that's why this chapter 17 and 18 are so important because God wants to equip us to overcome those temptations and those lies. And that's why when the word says, Babylon has fallen, that's why I jump up and down now. I'm going I'm to jump up and down way more about that than I am about the Cowboys winning or losing. I usually cheer when the Cowboys lose, but, you know, if, if you're a Cowboys fan and they win, oh, guys, please, let's don't let anything steal our highest praises away from God. If you're going to raise your voice, I hope the loudest expression will be for the love, the saving love he's given you in Jesus Christ the satisfying love he offers you in Jesus Christ. He's worth being passionate for, isn't he? He's worth it. He deserves it. Anything in this world that is not God can rob your heart of the love of God. Anything that is not God can draw your heart away from God. If you don't have it, it can fill you with a passion to get it. If you get it, it can fill you with pride of ownership and how you've got to keep it. And Satan tries to capitalize on those sinful tendencies and wants to deceive us and lead us into living in a city where man is God and God's not needed because the city of man can offer us all the prosperity, pleasure, and power we can ever imagine. And I hope that sets us up to be better equipped to learn how worldliness and the spirit of Babylon seek to tempt us and seduce us into compromising our faith. And that's where we'll, that's where we'll turn next week as we unpack 17, but then we'll go into 18. And we'll see the battle in 17. And we'll see God's conquering victory in 18. So how, can you do this for me? Can you just humor me? Babylon is fallen. Would you stand, please? Eric, would you come, my brother? And, and let's praise him. Hallelujah.